We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives. But can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon. Welcome to today's episode of the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. This episode comes to us courtesy of my good friend Sarah, who fortunately hasn't yet had any reason to use this knowledge, but she asked me to do an episode on how to help children cope with illness, death, and grief so that she can be ready in case she ever needs it. So my guest today is Dr. Atle Dyragrov, who joins us today from Bergen, Norway, and he's actually the first knighted interviewee on the show. So we're going to refer to him as Sir Dyragrov. (laughs) He's also a professor at the University of Bergen, Norway. He graduated as a psychologist in 1980 and worked for five years in the pediatrics department at Hakeland University Hospital, helping families whose children had died. He also co-founded the Center for Crisis Psychology and served as its general manager for 25 years, and he's now its academic director. He's worked particularly extensively with children who have experienced loss and trauma, as well as at the sites of major accidents and disasters, both in Norway and abroad, and has written numerous books, book chapters, and research articles on children's response to death and crises. Welcome, Dr. Dyergrov. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Now, before we get started on this topic, I just want to have a a little word with my listeners because, you know, some of the episodes that I do on the show are episodes that I do for them. And some of them are closer to my heart. And this is one that's a little closer to my heart as well. It's, It's not really a secret, but it hasn't come up yet in the course of doing the show that my own mom died when I was 10. Uh, in a way that was both sudden and unexpected. And it was so long ago now that it's not really a difficult thing for me to talk about anymore, but I kind of wanted to make sure that people are aware of it because it does impact the way that I talk about death and also the way that I think about it. I've lived with it for so long now that I sort of think I've earned the right to have a bit of a dark sense of humor. I also use very frank language like death and dead rather than passing or lost. And whenever someone uses the word lost when they actually mean someone died, I always think of a quote from that fabulous Oscar Wilde play, The Importance of Being Earnest, where Jack Worthing says, I have lost both of my parents. And Lady Bracknell responds, to lose one parent, Mr. Worthing, may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. (laughs) So our goal today is to try and understand what children understand about death and how they experience grief and to give you some real tools that you can use when you need to talk with them about it. So let's get started. All right, Dr. Diagrav, I thought we could begin on kind of the easier end of the questions and work our way towards the harder ones. <laughs> so death is everywhere around us. You know, it happens to all of us and our media is absolutely saturated with it, but we have such a hard time talking about it and particularly talking about it with children. So I'm wondering if you can tell us your thoughts on why this is and is it really because we're afraid of saying the wrong thing and should we be afraid of that? I I think that's part of the reason, but I also think that uh, we are uh, afraid of it because it has to do with our own vulnerability and the thought that maybe we would die away from our children, they have to be left alone. That's a a hard uh, thing for parents to talk, to think about and talk about. So, uh, and it it is a difficult uh, topic for everyone. And I think it's, uh, that's some of the reasons for why we we hesitate when we, we are to speak with children. 
And it, it's, it just seems so strange to me that it's, I mean, it's everywhere on TV. Yeah. <laughs> and we watch it all the time. But even when we're not talking with children, it's, it's such a taboo topic. Yeah, but it's it's getting gradually better. I think it's it's um, uh, when I started in the field in the early eighties, children were not allowed into the hospital if there was a sibling who was uh, very ill. And uh, oh, wow. I think we are we are much more open about it now than we were. And I am not that sure that happens everywhere, but but it's been a general movement across the world that we are more open, we're more direct in our responses to children so i think we're on the right uh, way okay well, that's that's a good sign then so i'm curious about what children understand about death uh we were actually i was taking my daughter down to the car this morning so she could head off to daycare and she was talking about how the rosebuds on the tr our tree outside our house had died and and i was curious about what her c conception is of that does she know that dying is forever does she know they're not going to come back into bloom again in two weeks what what do, what do children in general understand about death and and what are some of the transitions they go through in this understanding as they get older well in the preschool age they have a problem of understanding that when we're dead it's irreversible that you cannot turn it back they will ask you well in 14 days he'll be back <laughs> they, they, okay. they, have, uh, they also have difficulties understanding that all life uh, functions cease when we die mm. and they don't understand that death is universal that everyone will die uh, and Sometimes, depending on, on their actual experience, there is a transition when they get towards between four and six years, usually, they will grasp more of this. My own son was, uh, my youngest son was four and a half when his uh, best friend and her and his sister were killed in a traffic accident, as well as the mm -hmm. mother. And when we were going and I took him to also see the, the three dead ones then. And before he saw them, he was saying that in 14 days he'll be back. After the summer, he'll be back. He was sort of mm -hmm. grasping, not grasping the, the uh, irreversibility of it. And then when we had seen them and he had taken in the, the concrete facts, on our way back home, he said that now we can never do this. Now we can never do this. So he sort of took a step because of his practical experience with, with death. And you see that in, in many children, that they gradually come to grasp with this. And they understand that when we're dead, we, we don't think and we, we, uh, the hair doesn't grow any longer. But, but it's, it depends on how much you're exposed to death also. So you talked about the irreversibility there and then also the body still functioning after death. So it, it would be pretty common then to think that someone, you know, might have been buried but still be breathing or something in a way. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what happens. They they wonder who will give uh, the person water or what if they're thirsty. So they have this sense that they go on living and they will feel pain. So so uh, when we are to explain, we have to be very concrete and uh, make them understand how the, this death is concrete and that we don't feed anything and, and we don't need the supplies we usually will have as, as persons. Mm. 
Okay. And so I, I know you wrote a book on this topic. It's called Grief in Children, a Handbook for Adults. And I found it very clearly written. It's, the, the language is so concrete and it was so helpful to me in understanding ways to talk about this. And you, you say in it that you should, or the parents should let the child experience the death in the same way that the family does. And if there's a viewing of the body that the children should be allowed to see the body if they want to, that to me seems... Mm -hmm. I mean, my mom was cremated, so I didn't have that option, but I'm just thinking about, you know, taking my three-year-old to see a body and it's a very strange feeling for me. And I'm, I'm not saying I wouldn't do it, but it, it does feel strange. It, it, it does. Uh, we've changed that, the culture in Norway. When we started out, it was very uncommon to have children in, uh, even participating in uh, the funeral. Uh, now children are included in rituals and we've also done a study where we've interviewed children about this and, and they say that they sh uh, children should not be left out, they should be part of this and they argue for why it's important for them because this is something you, you cannot undo later mm -hmm. and it is something that helps them, helps them understand that the death is real, mm -hmm. uh, it can counteract the fantasies they have about what death is and it is also an opportunity for expressing. They can bring to the coffin uh, drawings and they can have written a farewell letter. So in all the, and, and I have lots of practical experience with this now. And of course, there's been some children who struggle with the image. They see the dead person and it, it's different than they thought it would be. So, so that create, can create an, uh, a sort of a traumatic image for them. But we can always help with that. But it's very hard if a child who's eight asks, where were I? Did, did I get a chance to see? And we have to say no. And we cannot undo that they've been kept out of this. So, so I, I, I really uh, tell parents that the best thing is to include them. But I also say never force them. Yeah. And parents must also feel comfortable with bringing the children along. And it demands that adults prepare them, that they follow them through and give them explanations for what they see, for also the adult reactions they may observe, and then follow up afterwards with conversation about what they've been part of. Yeah, it seems that, that preparation is really key, right? I mean, <laughs> if if you don't know what you're going to see, and I, I'm actually not sure I've ever seen a dead body, so I, I don't know how I would prepare someone, but I assume there is there are people you can talk to about that kind of thing, um, yes. and that you should have a conversation with the child in advance, right, about what they're going to see. Definitely. It's it's the, the difference between something that can be experienced traumatic and what can be therapeutic for you lies in the preparation. Okay. And so are, do you find that funeral homes are typically well-equipped to have those kinds of conversations? Or how, how do you do it if you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself? In, in Norway, uh, we see that the, the I, I don't know what it's called, the funeral, the undertaker. Yeah, uh, yeah, same they, thing. They are the ones that often introduce this to the families and, and also mm. uh, try to get the parents to include children. And so it's, it's more the, the rule that children will be part than they are excluded. And the same, if, if there's damage to the body to, uh, due to accidents or suicide, they will, uh, if, if parents can't be there, children shouldn't be there. But when parents can be there, children can be. And I've, I've, I have helped some who struggle with the images, but it's very few compared to how many who are, take part in this. But there are cultural differences here. And, 
and uh, it's it's something that uh, you gradually have to be be uh, in a culture uh, get used to i think and and find ways of doing it within uh, the culture we live in yeah yeah i'm just thinking about we we often talk on the show about how what other people do in other cultures is different and and you mentioned that the culture is shifting and particularly in norway and a lot of it has to do with the amount of experience that children have with death and i'm just thinking you know in cultures where they're not as lucky as us to have as much access to advanced medicine and death must must be a very much more common experience that children must have a greater understanding of what it means to be dead at a very much younger age than they do in Western cultures. Do you think that's right? I, I think so. But, but I also see now we had a, a disaster some years ago where we had 17 people who were killed in a, in a boat that capsized. Uh, and most of the families were from the Philippines. And we had 50, ah. 50 relatives, or let's say that it was mostly parents of, uh, and, and their close family, not children that came out to Norway. And when before they were returning home, we had a discussion about how they could prepare, how they could talk to their children at home. And, and they came from a culture where they said that it was not u- usual to include the children. But when mm. we discussed, they understood the rationale behind this. They understood how this could be important for children. So I'm quite uh, sure that they would include the children in, in viewing the bodies after they, we've had that conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So we've been using some pretty concrete language here about death and dying and bodies and (laughs) kind of thing. And I think it it can be difficult to use that kind of concrete language with children rather than lapsing into the euphemisms of people passing and getting lost, which is always my favorite one. How should parents who are religious balance their explanations that are that are based in their religion with concrete terms and even parents who aren't religious, you know, how can, how can we sort of get beyond those euphemisms to terms that really make sense to children? I think it's important that we can have, it's possible to be describe it in very concrete terms and what death is. And at the same time, if, if you're in a family with that's religious, it's uh, okay to, in, they have already introduced heaven, I guess. And then it's uh, quite possible to also say that the, there is, uh, the, the, the body is in the coffin, but we think that the soul leaves the coffin and goes up to heaven. So you, you, you describe that. That's what we believe. And then uh, I wrote a book about this where I, I just put in uh, one explanation for those who are religious and one for those who are not. And it, it isn't a, a, a great problem. It is a problem if we only bring in as a relief for them the the abstract because they have difficulties uh, uh, understanding the abstract. One of the first children's drawings I got was from a four-year-old who observed when uh, her uh, younger sibling were killed in a traffic accident. And she uh, drew this so beautifully. She drew the, the coffin with the dead child in it and two hearts, one heart that resided in the coffin and one on his way to heaven. And mm-hmm. it was just so beautiful. And she had taken in both parts of this. And mm-hmm. um, children have, if, if this is something that adults believe in, children have the possibility of, of, of uh, taking that uh, uh, belief in too. And it's good for them. Uh, most children, even if they're not religious, will think that they're there somewhere and we can visit them. There was one study in, from, from England where they asked children about their belief in the afterlife. And, and uh, the author from England said that 
uh, most children were a bit confused because they had only heard about people going up to heaven, but no, no one coming up. So it must be very crowded <laughs> up there. That was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I guess on the related to that, it's, it seems as though if we tell a child that somebody is sleeping or that they've gone away on a long journey, that that has enormous potential for confusion and uh, that the, the child might think the person's coming back. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's the worst thing we can do. And you have children who will, if if the parents uh, take a nap, they will be uh, can be very almost panicky that they are sleeping because they think now they they will die, uh, die too. And and of course, the, the most common reaction in children when there's a death in the family is that they're fearful that this will happen to others too. So when you increase that fear, you're doing a misservice to the child. Is it more common to for a child to be afraid for somebody else to die or for themselves to die? Somebody else. Usually oh, really? children... It's if they've lost one parent, it's the other parent. And if it's a sibling, it's the same. Uh, It's not that uh, usual that they start fearing for their own life. But some some do. And some I had one boy whose father died of a brain tumor. And he was certain that he had a brain tumor as well. So health anxiety can develop. Okay. All right. So I want to start talking about some kind of some examples of how these kinds of situations might come up where parents need to talk with their children about death and, and how we can do that in really specific terms. So, you know, our, our media is preoccupied with death. And so our children's first experience with death might be hearing about it on the TV or on the radio, or maybe even killing people in a video game. And I know that you've worked a lot with children who have directly experienced crises, both in Norway and elsewhere. But I'm also thinking about children who don't experience them directly, but just see them on TV. You know, in in the US, obviously, the planes flying into the World Trade Center is a really obvious example that really severely impacted children in America. And so I'm curious about the kinds of questions that children ask about people whom they don't know who have died and what parents should say in response. I think also here that it it needs to be an explanation that's concrete. That when they ask questions and they they will, for example, think, uh, did they feel any pain before they died? They they ask how long did it take. They have some of the same questions that adults have. But I think we need to, for example, now with terror, I've, I've uh, written a guideline for for parents on how to explain terror and uh, for children and then yeah, they need some concept they need some pegs to to put their and their sort of understanding of the world in so uh, it, it it has to be near to what happens and parents must not try to to explain away what has happened there must be a, it must be concrete terms and they have to go by the questions that the children ask but they can be so incredibly different it's easier to explain and it's easier to talk when it's not happening to your own family so that's a, a good introduction a, a pet's death or somebody else that dies that's not affecting the child directly is a good example of how you can introduce and talk with them about death and explaining death to them and so just to talk a little bit more about something you said you you said you wrote a guide to talking with children about terror what what kinds of things are in that and can we please get a link to it in our references <laughs> All right it it it's trying to explain how people can do a thing like that now we had the 
in, in Europe, we, we've just had the London terror and the Manchester terror. And so that, that we, we've been writing these guidelines every time there's a death or several deaths that's very uh, much in the media. Uh, and uh, we uh, tried to explain by saying, for example, that in, most people have a cleaning machine in their brain that when you have uh, thoughts about doing something that's not right, this, the brakes and the cleaning machine will take away these thoughts. But sometimes with, with the, the terrorists, they don't have that, that barrier. They don't have these things that will clean the thoughts. So they, they develop often by speaking only to others who think the same uh, ideas that can make them do it. So it's a, an explanation of that and uh, uh, terrorism for sort of the cognitive aspects of it. Mm. So we, it's very concrete also the, the way we, we say that they can try to, to get close to the child. Because the child, as you say, they take in so much of this news. And mm -hmm. we also know that the, the more time they spend watching the news, the more this will af affect them, even when they're not directly hit themselves. So does that mean in, that there are so many of these incidents going on these days that that has a cumulative effect? Or is it more that when a big one hits close to home that it's watching, you know, 20 hours of TV on, on that specific topic that's that's harder? Is there one or the other that's worse for the child's outcomes? It's in some way both, because we okay. tend to uh, think that these very dramatic incidents that we see on the, uh, in the media happens more often than they do. The chance of getting killed in terror is extremely low yeah. in Europe. In Norway, in the last five years, we have not had a single child that's been killed in terror. And we've had about 200 to 250 deaths from accidents and other things. And so we are afraid of the wrong things. Also in the US, the shootings, it's not the terrorists that kill yes. people. So, so this is, but the, our brain is wired to be anxious for the things we see get so much attention in the media. Okay. All right. So you uh, alluded to this already about a child's first direct experience with death might be related to an animal. Uh, maybe it's a wild animal that they see. I, I was actually talking to a friend of mine the other day who saw a dead bird on the street and told her five-year-old about it. And the oh. five-year-old was absolutely distraught and drew a picture of the, the, the dead bird and the mama bird being so sad that the dead bird was not coming back. But it may also be a pet, and, and pets can be extremely beneficial in children's lives, and they can help children develop pro-social skills and improve physical health outcomes. But eventually they do die, and the child might have become very attached to that pet by that time. And so I'm wondering if there are things that the parent can do to prepare the child for that, if it seems like it's getting to that point, if the animal's just getting old, and also how that differs from what happens if the pet dies suddenly while the child's away. Mm. Well, uh, when you have either in pets or in people, uh, something that you know will happen. Uh, most of the children don't want to go around thinking about it all the time, but they need to be prepared. Actually, in, in the Scandinavian countries, we now have a law that says that if you have a parent who's ill, uh, the child has a right to be informed and informed mm. along the way. So it's, a, it's moved into the law because that has to do with mental preparation. preparation. But... It's difficult. I have one girl now who's 13 and her mother has a, a serious illness and she will die. We, we know that. But she doesn't want to think about it. So some children don't want to have that information that they have a right to have because they're, they're coping by uh, just pushing it away. While others 
don't get the information they need to process and they want more information. So, so we need to be tailoring what we do to the individual child. But mostly it's good to know when there's a, when, when there's a situation with a pet or a person that now it's changed. Now we know that it's only, we, even though we can't know the exact date for when the death will occur, we need to prepare them. But children are, they don't have a large sadness span. So they will get the information and then they can say, okay, can I go out and play now? <laughs> and, and that's so wonderful because this has to do with the way they regulate emotions. Uh, through childhood, we gradually uh, develop the skills of emotion regulation. And to regulate emotions when they get so strong uh, as they do when there's death, you need to be fairly old before you have that capacity. So then they down-regulate the emotions by doing ordinary things. And the problem with that is, of course, that adults then think now it's out of sight, out of mind, while the next minute they can be very sad because then they talk, they, they think about it. And it's often in the evening that they these thoughts enter the mind when you, you have less of control over your thoughts. And so I'm just thinking about this from a parent's perspective. It, what might happen then is if if we had a cat and told my daughter the cat had died and she might appear sad for a minute and then say, you know, I want to go and play now. And, and that might be very strange for me as a parent to yeah. think, did she not care about the cat? <laughs> but the, I assume that's no indication of, of how much she cares about the cat, right? No, it's not. And okay. and, and if you get to, to adolescence, you see that... Uh, Many of the adolescents just push away and they get, there's a lot of concern among parents about this. I have a boy, he's 13 years old, he's lost his father, he doesn't want to talk about it. And that's problematic because sometimes it is a reason for concern. But often they can function without talking so much. And if they continue to function and they are out with friends and they're doing fine, there's no need for concern. But if you see that their functionality goes down and, and this really is taking a toll on their friendships, then you need, you know, of course, to do something about it. But, but it's hard because I work a lot with adolescents and many of them cope well, even though they push things away. And you cannot start any kind of therapy before they're ready for it. And so some of them come back when they're in their 20s and then they, they need to open up the feeling channels again because they're entering a relationship with that, where that's needed. Okay. Wow, that's a lot of potential years of yeah, <laughs> sort of not dealing with it. <laughs> yeah, but, but they, they, they are functioning and they're doing fine. But when you are in a relationship, you often need uh, an ability to be more close to your emotions and you need mm -hmm. to open up what you may have had good reason to push away for for a long while mm. okay and so as we sort of move up our hierarchy of <laughs> severity of death and 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 potential trauma to the child um it seems as though the the next level of trauma related to death once you sort of move beyond pets and animals comes with uh, someone whom the child is really close to, but maybe isn't the child's primary caregiver. I'm thinking it might be a grandparent or a friend at school or maybe a teacher. Do children's reactions to death change as the quote unquote importance of the person in their lives increases? Yes. And okay. It has to do with, with how much time you spend with somebody. So if you have a grandparent who takes care of the child a lot, of course the reactions will be stronger than if it's somebody you see now and then. 
So, and, and that's the same with friendships. Uh, one of the things that we have underestimated is the effect of losing a close friend. We've done some studies in this, and we did one after the terror we had in Norway in, in 2011, which shows that the grief in close friends were on the same level as siblings. So, so we, oh. we need to understand that more. And of course, friendships, especially in the adolescent years, are even more important in some ways than our relationship with parents. No, that's not true. <laughs> the parents are always the most important. <laughs> I with that, but uh, if you ask, uh, if you see the reactions in, in adolescence, they're very yeah. strong to losing the closest friend. I have, I have uh, had several in also in uh, follow up, following that. But I agree with you. Of course, it's uh, but it depends on the relationship to the parents. Right? It's, it's not. Yeah. Grief uh, over a parent is not always straightforward. Some have difficulties. It might be uh, somebody who's been uh, neglecting them or beating them or been alcoholic. So, so it's it's not like every every time there's a positive relationship that they've lost. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so when when the person who died is close to the child, is that person is probably also somewhat close to the parent as well, depending on whether it was a teacher or a grandparent. And so I'm curious about how parents can balance their own needs as they're going through a probably a grieving process themselves with their child's needs as well. And that that is a problem because parental capacity is often reduced if you have a death in the, the family. Of course, this is especially if you lose your partner or in the family there's a child who dies. It it can be very very powerful for the rest of the family. And for example, I had a, a boy who 14 and a half years old. His brother were were actually shot and killed. And two years later, he came back to me and he was was really depressed and sad. And he said that it should have been me. I, my brother was so successful. If if they've lost me, it would be easier for my easier for my parent. Mm. And I had to say to him that usually parents, uh, this has not uh, nothing to do with you not being as uh, they not, they not being as much uh, in love with you or loving you as much, it has to do with how a death is almost like uh, one of these dark holes in the atmosphere that draw all their attention to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, And he, he needed that psychoeducational guidance, that understanding that that's, that's not how usually parents function, but it has to do with, with death is so overpowering for parents when it happens to a child. Yeah, and I could imagine that it, it could sort of go both ways. If the parent is sort of consumed with their own grief, the the child's needs might get neglected. But on the flip side, if the parent becomes consumed with the child's needs, the parent's own needs could get neglected. Yeah. Well, what's the balance there? Where, how do you find that balance? Well, it, the parents who are able to sustain a conversation about the lost one is really the parents who do the service of the child, what the child needs. They, they a child is in development. That means that the way you think about the death when you're seven is different from when you're 11. And you need adults to talk along the way to help you expand your understanding of death, to help you explore what that person meant for you. And if the the adults are so hit themselves by the death that they cannot sustain these conversations, they cannot have an elaborate conversation with a child, it's much more difficult for the child. And it's also very much 
information. The more sudden the death is, the more information often is kept away from the child. And for the child to understand as well as to process emotionally what happens, it needs both things. It needs the information, it needs to understand, it needs to build a structure in their experience along a timeline. And that is very difficult if the parents don't allow them in on uh, uh, what has happened and also inform them over new facts that can come fairly long after the event where they get some information, the report from the accident, it might be an autopsy report. So so here is where I'm, I'm very eager for adults to be open uh, for that information. Okay. And so I'm just thinking about how how we can know that we're kind of getting that balance right at, at whatever age our child is. And, and so what I'm thinking through in my mind is if the child is asking questions, then they are probably processing it in their own mind. And if we are able to answer those questions in a direct and honest way, then, then we're probably giving the child the information they need to continue processing it. And if that, if that is kind of ongoing and, you know, maybe different questions come up over time, is that a, a good way of thinking about, okay, everything's probably going as it should in, in the processing of this death with this child? When they dare to ask questions, it means that they, they can see that the adult can take questions. When they mm. don't ask questions or they don't talk, it's very often also trying to protect the adults. So it's mm -hmm. yeah. even though you react, that you should tell them that it's okay that I react. Uh, adults, they are sad mu much more of the time than children are. And it's okay if I cry, it's not, it's, it's not thinking to be afraid of, you should continue to do that. But I also say that there's three or four things that uh, you, you, you should ask yourself concerning a child. And one is, how is the sleep? If the sleep is okay, is often a good sign. Uh, has the child changed very much uh, personality? Is very different from before. It does, I don't mean that they're more mature in their thinking, because that's the result. They, they, they think about life in a, in a different way. If they are functioning, if they're doing well at school, or and the feedback from teachers or kindergarten teachers are that they are doing fine, you can your, your shoulders can be lowered. Mm -hmm. uh, and the last thing I would say is, if they're out with friends doing what they usually do, playing football or handball or, or soccer, or I don't think it would be American football. American football, yes. Or, yeah. <laughs> that, was, uh, that is a good indication how they're doing. As soon as they start to fall out and then sort of isolate themselves, sit alone at home, uh, withdraw from friends, then that's a sign that maybe you should at least try to talk with them and sometimes if they uh, refer them to. Then that's one thing I would like to add is that if the death is sudden, there is also the aspects of trauma in this. And if they have traumatic images, they have experienced this in a traumatic way, that might be a barrier to their processing of grief because every time they are thinking about the lost one, they think about how it happened or what they saw or their fantasies about what happened. And that makes them just try to to uh, not think about it, not talk about it. So, so it's important to to know what, how are they dealing with these traumatic aspects of a death? And I imagine that could be traumatic for the parent as well to think yeah. about that. It, it, could the parent have somebody else talk to the child about it, like a, a another family member or? Yeah, that, 
that that's no problem at all. But but you just need to if if they start sleeping very poorly, often it's because these images or fantasies enter when they uh, go to bed. Like give you an example, I had a a, a father who, who dropped down with a heart attack at home, and there were two children, eleven and and twelve. Present and they were sent out of the room when the ambulance uh, people came. And afterwards, the the mother, a couple of weeks later, said that uh, I think it was three weeks later, she said that they they cannot sleep. And I asked her to bring them along. And it turned out that there was a window in the door into where they were working with the father, and they had mm. then used, of course, electric stimulation to the heart, and he jumped. And they both had these images on their mind. And the mother's attention was, of course, on the uh, the husband. So she didn't know that they, they had seen this. And as soon as we had that on the table, it was possible for them to get help with these images so they could go further with their grief because the trauma was, was really affecting how they were functioning. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So we're sort of getting to the the final level of <laughs> traumatic death uh, related to having a parent die. And I, I think it was probably less traumatic for me than for many children because I wasn't close to my mother for a variety of reasons. But for very young children, I would think it raises really basic questions about the child's own safety and security and whether the other parent is going to be around for them. So what kind of reactions should we expect to see in children as they process that information? And how can how can parent the remaining parent and the other family and community support them in that? Small children often have separation anxiety. When they're a bit uh, older, you, you see the same, but then they can verbalize some of this. There, there is a variety of reactions they can have from no reactions at all to, to uh, many reactions, different reactions. The guilt feelings that they have doesn't need any kind of reality to it, but, but they still can. Like, give you an example, I had a seven-year-old whose mother tried to commit suicide by throwing herself from a ferry. And she didn't succeed, but she was not... Uh, uh, she she lived for four years without any contact with her, and then she died. And I met her when she was 11 and asked if she remembered this. And she said, I remember it very well. And I also remember I thought she did it because I hadn't tidied up my room. Now, then you hear the 11-year-old reflect on the the imagined guilt at seven. So so there's uh, these different reactions that we need to, as adults, to touch in a way so we need to talk with them and we also need to help them process along the way when they start reflecting on it and might be bothered years later by something or like her who were then mature enough to see that this that thinking was faulty yeah i i mean wow that <laughs> having traveled through life for so many years thinking that you were responsible for your parents death because you didn't tidy your room is that really common in young children the guilt feelings are common I mean, I had one that was 20 years old and had, she was three years old when her sibling, uh, younger sibling was at home and, and, and she had problems and, and was on one of these alarm mattresses. Well, actually, she was out of the home that day and uh, the mother was, was then, uh, she saw that she had stopped breathing, but the alarm had gone off when she, she was showering. And when the girl came home, she had thought, had I been at home, this would not have happened. She didn't die then. She did, died at the hospital later. But that had uh, lived in her until I met her as, at 20. And it was all faulty thinking. And no adult had ever touched it. 
it was the problem when she was 20 that we we that led to us finding out that this was actually the the cause of it so there's a lot of uh, of uh, these guilt feelings that have no basis in reality that may be there among children so we we should be especially if the child uh, seems to be fun- not functioning as well in, in school or is very much alone, think that that is a possibility at least. But anxiety, guilt, anger, boys and girls can get very angry afterwards. And, and these are normal reactions, but if they continue over time, especially over six months, it's something that we need to address and they need to get some help from it. Okay, that's that's a very helpful guideline. And also, it seems as though the the topic of you know guilt that isn't <laughs> that is misplaced is something that could be very easily addressed in a conversation. If the if the child felt comfortable saying that to somebody, do they ever feel comfortable saying I I believe that I caused my parent to die because I didn't tidy my room when when they are you know five six seven or is it something that they just never say to anyone no matter how much another another family member asks? No, they can say it. I, I mean, I've had those who have said that. No, it's my fault. And when you start talking with them they can say you only say that because you want me to not think that way so they can be fairly uh, abstract or or uh, keeping on to their thoughts so so uh, it's it's sometimes hard to to try to get to the core of that guilt feeling because it's it's emotion based more than it's fact based Mm. So is there something that parents or therapists or somebody else could do if you know that that is an issue and the parent's death was not caused by the child not tidying the room? Is there any way to transition that from being emotion-based to being fact-based and helping them to understand that they were not responsible? Good information will reduce guilt feelings, but also when when you... <laughs> I, I have a. I don't know if you know these these things that they used to to get asphalt to make uh, or concrete to to smother it. I say something that I have to go up in your brain and uh, help getting your thoughts to be different because you're de- you're only thinking in one way. Uh, so so we sort of attack some of these thoughts. The child and myself together when they really are stuck in these thoughts and gradually get movement in it and. Uh, uh, they are sometimes very rigid, but uh, it's it's in most children it's not very rigid, so it's possible to do something. The best thing we do is good explanation close to the death, uh, having parents being aware that children very easily can say that it was my fault. So if parents early say that there's nothing you have done said that has anything to do with what happened, it cannot produce what happened. So that that's something we, we should have almost like a routine when you have children in relation to death. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's uh, <laughs> something I will store away and, and hopefully not need to use for a while. But yeah, it's I think that's a really critical, helpful thing for parents to understand that if you can have this conversation with your child and, and you see that their their guilt is being reduced, then you're sort of on the right track. But if that is not happening and they continue in that rigid way of thinking, then that's a good time to reach out for help. I had um, three children uh... 12-year-olds who were witnessing and they were playing in a a new site where they shouldn't have been. The the adults should have kept them from being in a building site. And one of them, he thread on a stone that fell on a bigger stone that hit uh, the brother of one of these children and a a five-and-a-half-year-old were were killed instantly. And 
it was so good when the others at once said that it was our responsibility to have prevented people from entering that. It has nothing to do with you setting that stone down there. And, and he said it when we, we met a couple of days afterwards, that it was very good that the adults said that. Otherwise, I would have thought it was my fault alone. Uh, so, so uh, uh, And he also got that from the ambulance people who came. They were, were so supportive, saying this is adults' responsibility. And it helped, it helped him tremendously. Okay. You've given us so many concrete examples. I wonder if I could ask you a personal question. You've studied this for so many years with so many different people. How do you cope with <laughs> what, what I imagine are, are complicated feelings about death? I, I get so much back from everyone I meet. So that, that gives it, it gives the work so much meaning. I think I have go, good coping measures. I, I train every second day. I laugh a lot. I do a lot of very nice things. I play bridge. I have a wonderful wife that works in the same area. She's a professor and we both have our doctorates within grief. So you can imagine how <laughs> dinner times at your house must be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have two children are, are journalists. One of them is a TV anchor in the news. So uh, uh -huh. we, we get a lot of very interesting <laughs> conversations when we all get, get together. Okay. <laughs> also lost my mother as a 19-year-old, so that made me mm. interested in this theme because it, there was so total lack of help for families in that situation. She had cancer. Mm. We never communicated about it. My father didn't want her to know, didn't want us to say that we knew. So so I thought, this is, this is not right. And then I had a yeah. wonderful mentor who brought me into the area as a student uh, working with the children with cancer. And uh, so it's been a lifelong, I won't say obsession, but it's, it's uh, been something that I've, it's really, I really have wanted to make a difference by writing in this area. Yeah, well, I hope you will touch a lot of people with this today. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your time with us. I personally have tools that I am stashing away in the back of my, my tool chest and, and hope that I won't have to use for a while, but I know that they're there if I need them, and that feels that's a very good feeling to have. So thank you. And thank you for letting me be part of this. So I just want to remind listeners that references for the show today can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash death. And Sarah Dyergrove's book, Grief <laughs> in Children, a handbook for adults, is available on Amazon. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.